Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you so much for being here today. My name is Sue Bell Yank. I'm the executive director of Clock Shop. And I'm really thrilled to be welcoming you here for the launch of Take Me to Your River, a cultural atlas, um, three-year project dedicated to telling the collective history of the Northeast LA River communities. We have so many friends, board members, supporters, partners, neighbors here. It's really a joy to welcome you all. For those of you who are new to Clock Shop, um, our mission is to work with artists to deepen the connection between communities and public land to imagine a future based in belonging and care. And we orient our arts and cultural programming toward these ideas of belonging and care because we believe that given the current state of our society, it's truly the kind of cultural shift that we need. <clears throat> Strong and tight-knit communities are increasingly hard to come by, especially because of the destabilizing ways our neighborhoods are shifting rapidly. Observing this dynamic was the impetus of this project in the first place. But one thing that became clear to us as we started to interview people is that there are lots of folks who value the same things we do and work really hard to cultivate those places and communities of belonging in their own neighborhoods. We're honored to be a platform for their complex and multi-layered stories. And through many of them is the presence of the LA River just down the block behind our building, um, called Paime Pahat by the original inhabitants of this land. But everyone has their own perception of the river over time. And that river itself has a complex and multi-layered relationship with the humans that surround it. This is just the prelude to the story, just the launch. And we're so grateful to all of the community members who participated and guided us in the pilot phase of this ongoing project. You really helped us create this project um, together. So <clears throat> I wanna thank uh, the supporters of this project that made it possible. Thank you to the Mellon Foundation, the Institute of Museum and Library Services, National Endowment for the Arts, the California Arts Council, the Nature Conservancy, which came in with the initial um, seed funding for this, and then Clock Shop's generous community of individual donors. Thank you. And now I want to hand it over to Dario Herrera, who has been shepherding this project forward and um, has put this event together, and I'm just so thrilled to be able to work with. So thank you, Dario. Thank you, Sue. Um, and thank you to everybody for coming today. There's some open seats here if you want to sit down or stand. <laughs> um, my name is Dario and I am the community programs manager here at Clock Shop. We've been working towards the launch of Take Me to Your River for about a year and it's really exciting to finally see the website and project go live. I really want to thank everybody who contributed to this project as it's your dedication and hard work that allowed us to turn this vision into the reality that we see today. This event is the start of a three-year cultural atlas project that aims to tell the complex stories of Northeast LA neighborhoods of Elysian Valley, Atwater Village, Glasgow Park, and Cypress Park. We worked hard over the past year to present the stories that you see on the website today, but these histories are only a sliver of the multitude of narratives that exist in these communities. You'll notice that we don't have any narratives from Atwater Village. 
And that's okay, because this map and website grows along with every submission and future interviews that are to take place. So I really encourage all of you to spread the word about this project and to encourage your neighbors or anybody that you know to submit a story of their own or to recommend them to us so that we could do a more in-depth interview with them. Now, as we transition into the second phase of this event, the storytelling portion of the event, I want to ask everyone to do just one thing, to listen. Throughout this year, I've listened to and sat through a lot of interviews with a lot of wonderful individuals who were a part of this pilot patch of stories. Each of them have entrusted us with some of their most precious moments, and it's been an honor to care for these narratives. As someone who was born and raised in Elysian Valley, the neighborhood that I grew up in in no way reflects what it is today, but my experience isn't unique. The neighborhood that I grew up in would seem different to many of the individuals that we interviewed, some of who remember a time when the freeway didn't exist or when the neighborhood was filled with manufacturing plants rather than cafes or bikes. But this project isn't about one individual perspective, but rather a celebration of the multitude of histories that form these communities, and that's only possible if we listen. So please listen to the stories, listen to these residents, and listen to those who have lived through the changes we see today as they take us to their river. So thank you so much for everybody for joining us today. The, so this part of the event, we have four wonderful guests today who are gonna share some of the stories that you can see on the map or some of the videos that we talked about or some of the boards. So we have Ceci with us today, Ruth, Ruben, and Yancy who's over there in the back getting some tacos. <laughs> so as we come up here today, we're gonna have a Spanish interpretation by Alexia. So each of the individuals have brought, um, whether it's a personal artifact or some sort of memorabilia that they wanna share with us today, please, as I've told you, as I mentioned before, please take time to listen and to take care of these stories as they're, these are personal stories that people are sharing with us. So thank you so much, really excited, and thank you all for joining us today. We're going to start with Ruben. <laughs> A round of applause. Okay, hi, my name is Ruben Molina. Um, my family moved to Los Angeles in 1953, and back then, coming from El Paso, Texas, um, there was a place in Lincoln Heights called the Broadway Hotel, and it was a place where like people came to look for work, and they would stay at that hotel for a dollar a day, and then, um, you know, kind of get your job and stuff, and then send for your wife, and so my mom joined my dad in 1953, um, and I was born October 3rd, 1953. In 1958, uh, we moved to 2241 Glover Place and uh, started school at Doris Place in 1958. So um, then I started meeting the kids from Doris Place, Glover, Riverdale, my cousins moved on Riverdale, my grandmother moved on Gatewood, and we just started meeting people. And it turns out that there was probably like 10 families that came from the same neighborhood in El Paso. 
So they all kind of knew each other, so we could, we could walk home from school together. Um, my mom started working at Nightingale Junior High, so um, after school, at, from Doris Place, we would walk to the Lopez house on Blake and Meadowvale, and she would make us sandwiches and stuff. So we had like this like growing kind of community, but everybody was from somewhere else. There was a bunch of families that moved down from Travis Ravine when they got their notices from the city that they had to vacate Travis Ravine. So there's probably like was a dozen families from Travis Ravine. Uh, and then, of course, from Mexico, there was a lot. So anyways, as the community grew, I think by 1970, there was like 70% of the students at Doris Place were uh, Mexican-American or Hispanic. And that's how we, just, we, we became friends. And once we, dis the boys, <laughs> not the girls, but the boys, once we discovered the river, that's what we controlled it. There was no rail, there was, adults wouldn't go down there. It was, it belonged to boys. Girls couldn't go down there, but the boys could go and we would um, be carrying like hammers and pieces of, of uh, pallets and stuff like, just pieces of wood and make your little, on your block. So, so down your block, you had your territory. It might be three blocks long, right? and uh, uh, like a three, three block section. And all the boys from those three blocks had their little center there. The next group had their next three blocks and we would go to war with each other. BB guns, um, you know, just stuff, just kids throwing firecrackers at each other. And that's how we built this kind of friendship. And it was always, you know, by seniority. So you had the older boys and then it came time for them to move on to junior high. It got handed down to the next group of boys. And then the, the group following them, they would try to be a little bit more um, aggressive, you know, and then the, the older kids would kind of put them down, you know. And, but it just, everyone got their turn to control the river. And uh, uh, so when we went to uh, junior high, it wasn't like if we went to junior high from an elementary school. It's like we walked out of the jungle and, and the kids in these communities across the river would look at us like, what the hell? Because we didn't have a recreation center, especially on the church side. That's a mile, a mile to a mile and a half walk for us, you know. So, so we just, the river was our recreation center. We didn't have like um, team sports and stuff, you know, at, at, at my age, right? So, so everything belonged to the river. And so going to school, it was like, um, like we didn't really like belong. We didn't feel like we belonged. And we didn't, especially, we didn't belong sitting in a chair because we were like wild and we were just like, no, we gotta get, it was like being hunters in a, in a gatherer's community, you know? And, and really, most of us didn't go to, to, to high school. We were done. But everyone did well. All of us did well in life, in, 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 in the business that they chose and things like that, you know. But anyways, so by, throughout this period,
period of time, um, there was the Little Valley Boys. And that was just a group of, of older guys that kind of ran the, the neighborhood in terms of just the hoodlums, the neighborhood hoodlums. And they would see us, and we would see them, and, and we'd be on our bicycles, and they'd be in their little low-rider low rider cars, and you know they would just look at us, and we'd be like in awe, like, wow, man. So we'd do our bikes the way they did their cars, you know, polishing them, and they would be parked under a tree polishing. We'd be parked in the sun polishing because we couldn't get the tree. You know, it was just like that belonged to them. But then came the day that we got cars and we took over that tree, the shade, you know. But they, so by the time we were getting ready to leave Doris Place, uh, the word started to spread throughout the, the senior class, say, right? You're going to cross these bridges and there's people over there. They're going to want to fight with you, you know. So you guys got to stay together and and don't get caught on the bridges because they'll throw you over, you know. And, you know, you're like kids. You're like, whoa, shit, they're going to throw us over the bridge. I swear, you know, you, so you, you're, you're walking. The, the first time you're going over the bridge, you know, walking, you're like, does anybody see me? You know, like walking past, right? So anyways, we got over there, and then, well, it was fine. It was fine, and, and we, we had, we did, we did good, you know, social-wise, social you know, we got along with everybody and uh but when we when we did go across they told us you're going across is frogtown and they had the name there really, really wasn't a name it was Elysian Valley and then it was the little valley boys they were the 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 guys that kind of ran the neighborhood and there was a guy named um Gachi. Benjamin Lopez, and he lived in Lincoln Heights, but he hung out over here around with the with the with the older guys. And one day they were all out there, and uh, it was raining, and there was frogs all over the street. It was 1965, and he tells these guys, "Why don't you call this place Frogtown, man? Look at look at all the frogs around here. You know, they're all dead on the street, run over and stuff." And uh, so little by little, they phased out, we phased in, and we took the name Frogtown. And, and so that's the way we went to school as Frogtown. And, uh, you know, we just, uh, uh, we just stayed like a very close-knit group. And we continued that, um, um, you know, for years. I mean, we, we had a... a, a uh, Frogtown reunion last Saturday, and there was like 140 of us, you know, and and uh, you know, just old guys, man, that just grew up right here and and really enjoyed, you know, our time here. And um, through the years, you know, in 1974, you know, things went kind of south on us, and the the city was trying to get rid of us, and the police were trying to get rid of everybody was trying to get rid of us, but we we. Uh, we we stuck together. We stuck it out, and, and um, in 1976 we got a little bit political, and we we were pushing for a new rec center. Back back in the old ni 1955, 
the newspapers, they were, they were, there was this article about the recreation center and how dilapidated it was in 1955. The, the recreation center, I think, was built in 1937, around there. But uh, in 1955, they were calling it dilapidated. In 1974, 76, same rec center, it was dilapidated since 1955. So we thought we could get political and go to City Hall and petition, you know, and do all that stuff. And so, yeah, we kept going and they kept putting us off and putting us off and building new centers in Echo Park, Glassell Park, Cypress Park, but they kept... So th those of us that were older were like telling the younger guys that were trying to be political, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't, you can't get politicians, especially us, they're not gonna give us nothing. So one day they came and we burned it down. Burned the park down, the old park. Some of the guys that just decided, you know what, we're not gonna deal with all that. We know how to do stuff. And Tony Cabet, the recreation center, uh, um, the director, he comes over, he's like, what the hell did you guys do? Nothing, Tony, you're just getting a new rec center. And, <laughs> and they built this stage at the site of the recreation center and Representative Stevenson is making the speech about how she works for the community and you're gonna get a new rec center. <laughs> Yeah, but you know, I mean, so anyways, uh, um, you know, that's, that's how we, we, we got here. Uh, in, in 1958, they, they took out, Riverside Drive was um, grocery stores, bakeries, gas stations, just like everything that a community needs to live. They took it out to build a freeway. They had, no, in, in 1960, we had nothing here. The nearest market was in Cypress Park on the, on the, on the, on the church side. On this side, it was up the hill. So the Lopez family, they turned their garage into a little market. And that's how we survived. That's how, because in, in, at that time, mothers didn't drive. And they had to wait till the husband came home with the car. They, and plus, nobody had two cars in a family. So if you wanted something during the day to cook for dinner, you had to walk. And so when the store opened in 1964, man, that was like a godsend to the elderly, to the, to the moms, you know, and, and they had everything there uh, at the market. So... Um, so even though we were like the guys that were kind of on the, you know, what they would call gangsters or hoodlums, whatever, we were always a part of the community and, and everybody, you know, knew us, everybody took care of each other, um, all of us took care of each other and uh, that's the way it's, you know, was always to me, that's, that's how I learned to, to be around people, to care for, for other people, and, and, and uh, you know, be a community. Cool. Thank you, Ruben.
So next up, we have Yancy Quinones. So Yancy is the founder and owner of Antigua Coffee Roasters, located in what he calls his hometown of Cypress Park. Hailing from a Guatemalan coffee-growing family via his mother and after traveling to Guatemala in the early 2000s and working in the coffee fields, Quinones dreamed of opening up his own coffee house. Today, Antigua is one of the few spaces in a neighborhood where both long-term residents and newcomers can sit together and connect, standing as a, as a testament to his unwavering dedication to coffee and his heritage. So I'm going to start off with, um, I didn't do any arson acts, nothing like that growing up. And I didn't burn anything down, so just want to put it out there. Yeah, just coffee, basically. Right? But <clears throat> so I just want to start off with, um, with a story. And it's um, a short story, right? But it's basically, I'm walking out to center field over at the Cypress Park Rec playing baseball. And they put me out in center field about nine years old in 1984. And um, <clears throat> the ball gets hit. And I'm, and I'm walking out of center field because the worst position for Pee Wee League is center field because that's where they put all the horrible players. <laughs> and you put them on center field because you're not that good. And at least right field, you're good, you know, you're, you're okay. But the best players are infield, and the catcher's the best one and the pitcher, right? So I'm out in center field excited because we're actually winning the game, one nothing. And I'm thinking, this is the last game of the season. I'm so happy, you know. And then I look up, and then, like, finally, my dad's there. He finally came to a game. Last game of the season. So I'm there hanging out. The ball gets hit really hard, going straight to center field. Perfect. There's a runner on second. There's, you know, one out. And I remember the coach telling me, just get up there, and when you see the ball between the web or your glove, just stand there and let it fall in your glove. And then once the ball hits your hand, your glove, you close it. I did exactly what he told me, right? But when the guy hit the ball, I looked at the bench and the coaches with his eyes closed. Everybody's like, oh, we're gonna lose. And the guy in second's already in home plate. He's already in home plate. Like, they're gonna, they're gonna win the game. We lie, we didn't win a single game right now. I caught the ball and I'm shaking. And I look at the ball and I can't believe I caught the ball. And then the right fielder comes over and he grabs the ball out of my glove. He goes, dude, give me the ball. And he throws it a second, it's a double play. Double play, we win the game. And I, they carry me off, basically, we go have pizza at a round table. And everyone forgot the whole season how horrible I was, and they remember me for that play, right? And I have the picture probably roaming around there somewhere, right? And my dad was so excited, and I'm thinking, everybody was here. My dad never went to a game, because he was a functioning alcoholic. He was a teamster, worked really hard, but he was an alcoholic. So he was never home, basically. Go to bars and Atwater Village and all that because he was part of the um, Franciscan Ceramics factory there. So years ago. So anyways, I get older, move on. I'm about 13 years old. I start going around the neighborhood cleaning and cutting grass and all that stuff. My mom bought me a lawnmower at the Kmart. That's not there anymore, the Goodwill. Get, the, get that, go back. Start cutting lawns, plug in, five bucks, whatever it was, right? And I was already learning entrepreneur ways and stuff like that. So then I started doing, you know, the basically the um, what they call today the um, 
Insta Instacart and stuff like that, right? People going and doing, I was doing that for the elderly in the neighborhood who were people who lived in Cypress Park, who had been there forever, who actually worked during the war effort at the factories that they had down here. So the battery factories and all that stuff that they were manufacturing, it was women. So I would go out with a bicycle, go around, get their orders, go to, go to um, Figueroa Market at the time. The market was right here in the corner of um, Figueroa and um, 26. And I'll go there and sh do the shopping. And that's how I learned how to more be like, you know, into economics. So the way I got paid was like, here's the money and the change is yours. So, okay, so as I went, I started realizing, well, things are on sale. I could get more, and then I would take stuff home, and then I kind of knew what the lady wanted all the time. So that's how I got more money. And one of the biggest experiences from that was coming back on a bicycle one day, and I had my little sister with me, who is now like a, a principal at a, at a school. And I dropped the, the gallon of milk, and it shattered. And, you know, and I looked at her, and I looked at the milk, and, oh, man. And I went back to the market, bought the milk again, and that was my profit, it was gone. But like I told my sister when she was there, she was, well, you have no more money to buy me candy. I said, I know, but sometimes we gotta be responsible and you gotta deliver. Those foundations of growing up was delivering, working hard and doing things like that. And growing up in the neighborhood, yeah, growing up with the gangs, growing up with everyone, like I knew the dangers, I knew how to stay away from everyone because I was brought up to always respect your mother and father, despite the fact that, again, my father was an alcoholic, and the only time I liked him, and he was really nice, was when he was drunk, because he was a nice guy. But other than that, you didn't want to be by him. So I kind of learned, you know, that's why, I mean, I don't drink, I don't do anything like that, that's not my thing. So as I got older from there, I learned a lot of stuff. Stuff happened there too, the whole other story about how, how things happened when I was 13, 14 in the neighborhood. But I went to high school, and in high school, same thing. I went to a good school, studied, did well. Then I ended up in San Diego State at the time, 1993. Then I dropped out because no support and so forth. And I was, I was really compelled with the revolution and stuff happening in Mexico, the Zapatista movement. So I ended up going on my way down to Chiapas. And I'm in Mexico, I'm in Guadalajara. And I called my dad and, and he finally acted like a real father. And he told me, get over here. I'm going to go kick your ass. <laughs> and, and I couldn't believe it because for the first time in my life, he talked to me like he was a real father, a real mentor. And, and, and I respected that. And I, I went back. I came back to LA. And he talked to me. And he finally talked to me. He finally told me what I wanted to hear for so many years. And that kind of was what made me change. And I said, you know what? Like, my dad was never there, but he was finally there, kind of like the baseball game. Everybody remembers you for the last thing you do. And I remember my dad for the last thing he did was to mentor me and tell me, like, do whatever you want to do in life, but make sure you do it right. If you want to be a baker, make sure you have the best bakery, the best bread everybody wants. If you want to be a mechanic, again, same thing, best cars, best mortars. And, and I thought, you know what? I want to go to school, graduate. And my mom had promised me, because we own coffee farms in Guatemala, she had told me, like, I'm going to send you to Guatemala after you graduate from college, and you're going to go work there for a year. You're going to learn the coffee business there, and you're going to come back and see what you do with it. So I got an opportunity to do that, and I, and I went, and I was there for about a year, and I learned a lot of things. Yeah, I really grew up, and I learned about 
you name it, neoliberalism, so forth, everything. 9-11 happened here. I was working in Guatemala when that happened. So I was able to see the effects of, of developing countries and how they depend on this country a lot and the people that work here and send residuals over. So I saw everything at the time and I was still there. I didn't want to come back to LA at all. I was afraid. I was like, oh man, they're gonna, they're gonna, you remember what they were talking about getting to the army and they were gonna recruit everyone. I was good in the farms. I was like, you know what, I'm okay right here. I'll chill right here with the donkey, that's cool. <laughs> we, we use donkeys there to carry coffee. So, because you have terrain that's really tough. So it was kind of like, like, finally I came back in November of that year. And, and I came back with a mission. I said, I know what I want to do. I want to create a space. I want to create something for my community in Cypress Park, a coffee shop somewhere. And at first I ended up getting a spot, but it was in the community of El Sereno. And I never really, honestly, never really felt a place there. It was there only for two years. And I never felt a place there. I just felt like, no, I need to be in my neck of the woods, which is literally over the hill. And then a customer of mine came over, and he had just bought a building, which was the old ice cream shop when I was growing up. And he offered me the space. And I went and looked at it, and I was like, wait, this is the old ice cream shop where I grew up buying ice cream. So I went in there. I completely got it out, built it. It took me two years to build it. And got in there and then created the space what it is now. And it's been, you know, 18 years later or so. And that's kind of like where the story goes. That I started off in my own neighborhood, which I still love a lot. Playing baseball, growing up, I had a good foundation. I had a really strong mother. And I had talked to Julia about it. You know, my, my mother's a Jewish woman. And I, I grew up with those foundations. And my father was a Catholic, but a medieval Catholic. So it's... <laughs> So, like, my buddy is a lawyer, a friend of mine, he calls me a cashew. You see where that goes. And that's kind of where my story's at. Where I got to where I am today. Today, I'm a father of three girls, really brilliant girls. I mean, I'm shocked because it's just like their mother. And I'm always wondering, too, like, how did their mother even pay attention to me? Because she's like 180. And so it's kind of like how you build a foundation, and, and, and I'm just wanting to be a good father and a good community member and, and just have fun. Have fun, laugh stuff off and remember your background and, and just keep exploring and, and meeting new people. And that's pretty much it. Any questions? No. Thank you, Yancy. Up next, we have Ruth Coleman. So Ruth Coleman served as director of California State Parks under three governors. During her time as director, she oversaw the acquisition of 115,000 acres of land, the funding of over 1,400 construction, pro construction projects, and 1.6 billion in bond funds that went to grants for local government groups building park facilities. She oversaw the acquisition, planning, and completion of both Los Angeles State Historic Park and Rio de los Angeles State Park, two important public green spaces for the surrounding communities. Please give it up for Ruth Coleman. Thank you. So, um, I'm sort of the outsider today. All the rest of you are telling the stories of your community, and I'm going to share with you what it was like coming in as an outsider to this area to build some beautiful spaces. First thing I want to share with you, it is a universal truth that every state park in our system started in the same way, which was a handful of incredibly committed individuals had an idea and just fought and fought and fought until that idea became a reality. 
So you can trace every single state park to that same process of community activism and the power that comes with community activism. And that was definitely the case with the two parks that I want to talk about today, which is formerly known as the Cornfields and formerly known as Taylor Yards. So uh, Los Angeles State Historic Park and Rio de Los Angeles State Park. So the community really got organized and around 2000, the politicians started to listen and to follow suit. So it starts with the leadership of the local politicians, Ed Reyes in the back, serves a huge amount of, of uh, credit for that. Antonio Villargosa, who was speaker at the time, played a role in getting appropriations, and then Governor Gray Davis signed that into law. So that was sort of how the political side worked, following the work of all the activists, many of you who are still here today, and some who have passed on. So we were then told as state parks, buy these properties. They were both remediated bits of, of basically dead soil. It was uh, toxic lands cleared off by Union Pacific, and now we were being asked to create a state park. So now what are we going to do next? So here we are, state parks, now having purchased two pieces of land, which at this point are very different from the rest of the state park system. When people normally agitate to create a new state park, there's something there that they're trying to preserve. Ancient redwoods, a historic site, a waterfall, something like that that they want to preserve. We came in and there was 32 acres at Cornfields and about 40 acres at Taylor Yard. And we knew this was really different for state parks because we're typically an agency that preserves and protects cultural and natural resources. So how are we going to create a space that's meaningful? We had to completely transform how we engaged with the community, how we engaged with the public. Typically when you work with a government agency, we have our meetings during the day. But if you want to hear from a community, people are working during the day. Kids are at school during the day. So we had to tell our staff, we're having meetings in the evening. We're going to have them in multiple languages. We're going to provide childcare. Whoa, that blew their minds. Childcare, we're rangers. We don't do childcare. We had to figure out how to do childcare. And we had to come up with a way to actively engage with the community countless times, not just one-off meetings, but meeting after meeting after meeting, to start to tease out what is meaningful and what is important to people to build in these park spaces. One of the things we did that I wanted to share was we engaged with children. So I think there's some photos passing around that would show a group of kids sitting around a piece of paper. We drew the outline of the cornfield site. And then we gave each sheet to the children, and we gave them crayons and markers and said, design the park you want. And then I flew down with some of the other senior staff, and we met, and we said, children, tell us about your, about your drawing. We didn't want to just have them up on the wall. We wanted them to tell us what it was that they wanted, what they were trying to, to, to convey to us. And one boy's story sticks in my mind more than any of the others. He got up. He was probably about eight years old. He had completely covered... This, uh, this drawing, he'd completely covered in blue. So the outline of his, of his part, it was all blue. And he said, I want it to be a lake. I want calm waters and no dead bodies. And boy, did that convey to us in a tremendously visceral way that not only were we playing, providing places that were going to be important for kids to recreate, which you've heard from the two previous speakers, recreation was a really important part of their childhood memories. Baseball, playing in the river. But also it needed to be safe. 
So if any of you are wondering when you run, drive in front of Rio de Los Angeles, and you can see from the other um, exhibit that was passed around, the design, if you're wondering why is it I can't see the park? Why is there this big berm? We put that there because we were told by the community that there was a concern about drive-by shootings. It's 2003. Drive-by shootings were fairly common. So we built a large berm to protect and make people safe inside that park. Without it looking like a big wall or something really kind of militaristic, it was a natural safety mechanism. So through these conversations, we built these two extraordinary parks, which today now are serving countless people and are providing a source of, of recreation and recreation for all the people whose lives are touched by those parks. So there's another universal truism I want to share with you. And that is that all of these parks that are created through that activism from the past generation, the responsibility for all of us and every successful ex succeeding generation is you have to protect these parks. You can never assume that they are safe. As director of state parks, I fought off mega power lines through desert parks, toll roads through a beach park, more power lines through Chino Hill State Park. And today there is an aerial highway being proposed over Los Angeles State Historic Park, also known as the gondola. And so if you want to save these parks, you have to keep your voices loud and you have to continue to be activists. State parks are viewed as open space and often for people designing infrastructure, they see it as a path of least resistance. So never assume that the parks that you have today are the parks you will have in the future unless you continue to fight for them. And the other thing I want to just remind everybody is there's always opportunity for more. There's the 100 acre vision that we're now all working on. And it's so exciting to imagine that Taylor Yard and the bow tie will be connected and that all the way to the river. And that someday it would be nice if the bike lane would connect all the way to LA State Historic Park so that you can knit all of these public spaces together as we can recreate and re-engineer LA back to being what it could have been had they followed that Olmsted study that was done, if you know, but in 1920s, Frederick Olmsted Jr. did a study for LA and designed a brilliant set of parks that have not materialized, and yet now today they could. So I just want to thank you all for the opportunity to share with you what it was like coming in from the outside, and just to remind you all that you have inherited an amazing legacy from people a generation ago, some of them who are still here today and in this room, and it's up to all of you to keep fighting to preserve them. Thanks. Thank you, Ruth. Our last storyteller is Ceci Dominguez. Ceci Dominguez has been a resident of Elysian Valley for over 50 years, and she has been involved in a wide variety of community issues since moving to this neighborhood, including advocating for more green spaces, cleaning up the LA River, working on improving local education, and decreasing pollution from nearby trains and businesses. Driven by a desire to improve Elysian Valley, she has served in a variety of neighborhood leadership positions and currently heads the Elysian Valley Senior Group. Let's give it up to Ceci Dominguez. Hi, good evening. I'm not a good speaker, but I like to tell stories. And so this story is not going to be about me, and I'm the last one, so it's going to be short. Okay. So I've lived in Elysian Valley for around 54 years, and my story starts on a porch, on a porch on Altman Street. And that porch belonged to my husband's family. I was a young girl and had never been around older people who did tell stories. And it intrigued me 
to know that these stories were true and facts, and that this is an art to tell a story and to remember it. And so again, it started on a Sunday morning after a Sunday meal, and they shared and remembered their past neighborhood, their family and friends. Their family and friends were from Palo Verde, um, La Loma, and Bishop, known as Chavez Ravine. Their stories were not recorded or written, and they were for our families. Their stories have no contrition or regret in them. They never had any bad words to say, but just good memories of their neighborhoods. They have been told to five generations of our family, even down to my grandson knows the story of what has happened in Chavez Ravine. This is not only history, but it is fact, even though it's not written. And so I'm going to tell you just a little bit about the Delgado Dominguez uh, family when they left. And that was my husband, Ray. He was around nine years of age. So he came, they came down to Elysian Valley. Uh, they left before they were violently evicted. It was not a nice position to be in at that time where you knew you had to leave no matter what. One of their family members by marriage was the last family taken uh, by the sheriffs as their children cried and watched as they were taken from their home and their home destroyed in front of them also. And um, how much did they receive for the houses and where did they go? Were they displaced? Yes, they were. They were displaced. Um, you know, there are three, uh, three of his families. They live in a, uh, two pieces of property. The, the grandmother had two homes. Um, and so their extended families lived in many le levels of these properties. Three of the families moved down to Elysian Valley. Um, now there's probably around 20, maybe 20 of us that still live here. Okay. Um, my husband, of course, the love for the river and for the hills that they roamed in as children. You could hear Reuben's story of how they roamed these hills and went down to the river. Unbelievable to have a backyard or a playground that big. There was no freeway at that time. And again, as Reuben stated, uh, many of uh, the businesses were removed from the people who lived here, markets, libraries, and such. Okay. Um, they would use this whole area and had to be home before dark. So wow, that was, that was so great. Um, there is a map that's going around. Uh, it shows their properties. It shows their surname, so you could see what street they lived on. My husband's family lived on Malvina. But most of the houses say sold, 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 which is unbelievable that more than 300 families were displaced out of this. Um, and I offer, often wondered, in all of the documents, if we had any, we never saw a title, we never saw a receipt, we, we didn't see anything that was given to them. So where is this paperwork that they should have received um, for their properties? I remember a story of them saying they were sitting on the porch as they watched smoke up in the hills. People literally burned their homes rather than be given a cheap price or having their homes auctioned and removed after they were given a lower price. Um, there's many stories I would like to investigate more now that I'm into the storytelling of what happened to them. Where are their stories? Where are their property tiles, titles? Where is their money? And where are they? Most of them are dead. They still have a generation of children that possibly remember 
but what will we remember? They will remember the stories because again, this was not documented. I thank you again, thank you. Hi everyone, I'm Julia Meltzer. I'm the founder of Clock Shop, now senior advisor. I wanna thank everyone for coming today and thank you so much, Ceci, Ruben, Yancey, and Ruth for sharing all of those significant stories. Um, I have a list of funders here. I wanna thank, <laughs> to remember, I wanna thank everyone here who worked on everything that happened on the website, the, the photography, Matthew, I don't know if he's still here. Um, Matthew, thank you so much. And Dave was here, who did the animation and Gian, uh, the illustration, and Steve, who did the website. Um, it's been a long process for all of us, and um, it's great to present it here today. Uh, our funders, the Mellon Foundation, the NEA R-Town Grant, the Nature Conservancy, the Institute of Museum of Library Services, and the California Arts Council. Um, we're so grateful to everyone who shared their personal history with us. It's a reminder to me, as someone who grew up in Los Angeles, and witnesses every day in this neighborhood and others how history and what we see in our built environment and our natural environment disappear overnight. So it's really important for all of us to document and to tell each other stories um, orally, and we look forward to sharing more of this with you over the next three years. Thank you, Dario, Rombi, Sue, Tina, everyone on our team, who else is here, Kat and Isabel, and our new staff person, Katie. Um, thank you everyone for coming. Have a great afternoon.